Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and you're listening to episode six. And today I'm talking with Joey Lieber about improvisation and effective communication. Welcome to episode six of the podcast. This is the first bonus interview episode of the podcast. And this was first recorded live last week in the Vibrant Music Studio Teachers Group on Facebook. So if you want to catch these live, there's going to be one a month and you need to join that group in order to watch the video, ask your questions as we go live. But I wanted to rebroadcast it here because it's really useful when you're on the go. Just have the audio in your pocket and you can grab it and go. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Joey Lieber. So my first guest is the wonderful Joey Lieber. Joey is a piano teacher in New York who is known for making improvisation accessible to teachers from all backgrounds. I always find his comments and insights so helpful and useful and uh, they come from such a place of helping other teachers rather than putting them down for not knowing about some jazz term or other. So I'm delighted he was able to join us for this chat today. Welcome, Joey. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. So whether you guys are watching live or on the replay, please do ask questions and comments. I'll be putting the questions to Joey as we go through. So if you have questions to add to my questions, um, I don't want to be completely selfish and just ask what I want to ask. So do let me know if there's anything that you need help with or need clarifying or just supplementary questions that you want to get in along the way. First, I'd like to know, Joey, just a little bit about you and your studio. So what mix of ages, how many students, what styles you're teaching, that kind of stuff. Um, The majority of my students are intermediate plus students. I teach a lot of teachers and performers online. That's a lot of my studio. Um, And then... Locally, I teach a lot of intermediate uh, uh, players who are transitioning to jazz. And then um, I also have a couple of you know, younger beginners. Um, but in terms of the spread, I would say the bulk of it is intermediate uh, plus players. And then also, um, I also accept uh, some beginners who want some a more of a exploratory and uh, kind of improv-centric approach. So I kind of work with uh, that type of uh, student in my studio. So. Okay. So do you find parents sometimes seek you out because they want that style of teaching? 
I would say that's almost always the case. Yeah. Do they find out about you online on Facebook, that kind of thing, and then they just look you up? Usually it's just referral based. Um, my whole business is basically referral based. I don't really post ads or anything like that. Um, my entire work is based off of people seeing me create content online or teachers referring me or parents in my studio referring me. Um, and yes, so that is basically my, my work is, uh, you know, I, I create blog posts and stuff like that. So parents kind of seek me out based off just what I, me putting myself out there and other people seeing me put myself out there. So that's how they find me. Yeah, fantastic. And I should have mentioned you're in New York State, is that right? I'm in Westchester, New York, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about improvisation then. I'd like to ask you a few questions because I know teachers are very nervous about this, especially us who aren't experienced in jazz and that kind of thing, and they can be quite apprehensive. So tell me, for you, does improvisation begin at the very first lesson? How do you approach that? So, of course, you know, a first lesson changes for who the first lesson is for, you know, a first lesson, um, are you talking about like first lesson ever in someone's life or like in terms yeah, of like, like say first... they're a beginner. Yeah. So like, um, you know, I, uh, I'm heavily influenced by methods like piano safari and stuff like that. So, you know, obviously piano safari starts with, uh, you know, piano safari starts with finger two, but some teachers use finger three. So, um, you know, when 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 kids are using one finger, you know, something you can do is have them. Play up and down the piano, improvise on the black keys with just one finger. You know, it, it, improv, I think, is really important to start from, from the first lesson, but to make sure to stay in the constraint of where the student's technique actually uh, is. So, for example... the black key pentatonic on top of the student and below I'm playing a G major, a G flat major, you know, B major chord, which work with the pentatonic. So I think, you know, it's, you know, what, what I like to do is I like to help kids be creative within whatever method they're in and whatever technical constraints they're in in their kind of current development. Mm. Do you normally do it as the first thing in a lesson or is it, it varies or could it be like a whole lesson that you just spend creating so um, I'm just fixing my headphones so um, so for example um, one of the first pieces I, I teach to kids uh, is Charlie Chipmunk um, and then we'll mess with that how about going down well the whole piece like this That's the whole song. But then what about we improvise off the black keys off of that? So assume we'll do something like this. Now let's say, what about we play that pattern somewhere else? Somewhere else. So we deconstruct the patterns of these rope pieces and these pieces, play them all over the piano, and get them creating all over the piano from the very first lesson. So that pieces kind of um, take shape as not so much like a finite piece, but as sort of an opportunity, kind of like clay to like mold it around and mess with it and like and like move it all around the whole piano and transpose it. I use a lot of transposition. And so uh, pieces start to become very fluid and uh, and instead of just a static thing that exists, it exists more as a, 
uh, opportunity to create. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that's what you would do with a beginner. Let's say um, you now that you have an experienced, classically trained adult. Let's say you have, or perhaps even a teacher, but just someone who has some piano experience. They can play decent repertoire, but they have literally never taken the page away from them, and they've never experimented with this stuff. And they come to you and they say, Joy, I just want to be able to sit down and play something without always reading. What would you do with them first? How would you break through that? So actually, uh, this depends highly on the student. Um, let me actually use an example that happened literally like two hours ago, okay? okay. Uh, this was not with the teacher. This was with the intermediate kid, but it crosses over anyway, so I'll explain. So this kid came to me as a transfer from three years classical prior, and uh, he came to me playing um, the entertainer. And so... So he came to me playing the beginning of the Entertainer. He came to me playing that. Now, what we started to do is say, okay, you have this on the page, but let's look at what is actually happening. First of all, this is based off the G, sort of off the G6 sound based off the G major pentatonic. So what we started to do is first he played a G7 chord in the left hand. Then we started doing white key improv off the entertainer. It sounded like this. do, and, he, and he, he did that just like a second ago, first time ever, ever improvising. So what I like to do is, um, one of the first questions I'll ever ask a teacher or a player, pretty much an intermediate plus, when they transfer to me is, first question I ever ask is, now that we're here together, I want you to play me something that brings you joy. Anything, it could be anything in the world, literally anything at all. It could be WC, Bach, or like Entertainer, it could be anything. And then what we do is that we look at what they're playing, and I basically help empower the fact that they actually already have the tools of improvisation within them already. Because all this, you know, especially people with intense classical study, really have quite a wealth of knowledge that they're bringing to the table. I mean, Bach, I mean, I was studying the well-tempered beer like two weeks ago. I was like, oh my God, so much amazing stuff. But that's a lot of stuff. Uh, anyway, I, I'm, I'm liking how, 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 how it goes. But all that stuff, all these chords, you know, that's based off a C minor chord. Well, then we can improvise off C minor together. You know what I mean? So we take what they already have and learn how to explore and create with that. And that's kind of our entry point into improvisation, right? So we take what they know and learn how to apply it contextually and then extrapolate from that. That's fantastic. So what do you do then, though, if you have a student and you say, okay, we'll just add a bit of improvisation using the G pentatonic or whatever comes up in their piece in this section, you try them to get them to try one little thing and they're just too terrified. Have you ever had a student okay. who just won't do it? Yes, of course. So um, 
this is why it's very important. Uh, I, I talked about this when I spoke at CSMTA, like, whatever, like a year and a half, two years ago. So um, fear is probably like one of the biggest things that we look at when it comes to improvisation. And the big thing about fear is that, think of it like a language. If I were to, um, you know, I said, I said earlier during the countdown that I wanted to go to Paris, right? Imagine if you dumped me on the streets of Paris and told me to speak French, right? Well, that would not go very, very well. Okay, because I don't speak French. So now imagine, let's do the parallel. Imagine that you dump a student, dump a student. Let's imagine you put a student on the piano and you say, go, improvise, and you just say, do that. Yeah. Well, it's it's pretty much the same thing as telling me to go on the streets of Paris and speak French. It's not fair, okay? So what's important is when you start a student off with improv is that you tell the student how to say where is the nearest restaurant in French, okay? So you have to give them the vocabulary at first to create. For example, with this thing from the entertainer, when I gave him the white key improv, I started to give him these phrases. Pen to scale uh, phrases. We were singing that back and forth. I started to inject vocabulary into his playing so he felt empowered to create on the spot. So we had words to speak with. Opposed to saying, okay, just go on the white keys. And you imagine how crazy that is to say that to a student. Go. You know what I mean? So. So it's about empowering and giving the ability to speak so that they can speak on their own. Fantastic. So what about the beginner teacher then? I mean, not beginner as in with teaching, but with improv. Do you feel that they need to have those phrases and therefore they have to have a certain level of experience with improvising? Should they practice this on their own for a year? Should they dive in and just try it with students? What should they do? Okay, so let's do a parallel with my current journey, okay? So I uh, take classical lessons myself. I, I study with a teacher and I learn um, about how to really study a score, and I learn about how to like teach reading in a very organized way, which is not my training. I come from a jazz theory, a jazz theory background, and so I put a lot of work into my like notation work, right? Which is like the opposite of what we're talking about, literally the exact opposite, yeah. right? So, but I put so much work. I'm constantly asking feedback from classical teachers. Hey. There's this piece, there's this, uh, there's this articulation, how do you teach that? You know what I mean? So that's me. So that, that I'm, I'm not coming from that vein, but I still teach it sometimes. So I take lessons, I go to seminars, I ask questions, I practice. You know what I mean? I do, I do, lots, of, uh, I do lots of different work. So my answer is to do improvisation, I think like anything as teachers, when we're doing something, we should do our due diligence and like practice it because that's how I work at least. Like, you know, you, I mean, it would, I think it would do our students a disservice if we just like kind of winged it. Like that would be kind of crazy. But like, to, but to answer your question is the stuff to practice for improv, thankfully, is not that imposing. You know what I mean? So, for example... For the white keys, you can practice uh, pentascales or not. And I'll be uh, releasing some content on this in the next, like, one to two years when I get time to do that. But, um, but, they, but they, thankfully, uh, the stuff to practice 
is very accessible. And there's resources out there as well now to help with that. For example, um, 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 you have like the Forrest Kinney books. You have the um, you have uh, you have like lots of different. You have all the accompaniments in the piano supply that go along the improv to to to, to help you out. Um, I myself in the piano safari level one book have a old McDonald accompaniment that's super jazzy and awesome. Uh, so I think you have these tools to help you a lot along the way. Um, but it's just a matter of putting in that time ourselves as teachers to dedicate to getting better as improvisers. You know, I work with teachers myself every week on, on, on helping their improv journey. It's a very rewarding one. So that's, you know. Yeah. And um, I would encourage teachers as well. I don't know how you feel about this. It's, like if they have an element like that, like the C pentascale, they know that'll fit into this student's piece and that they could do what you're, expe- you're explaining there with that. Just practice that pentascale and then apply it in the thing. Like it is a journey, as you say, and yes, they need to get better themselves and they need to keep studying, but they can try out one idea at a time. At least I think they can. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's not... I mean, I, I go... I, I teach a full studio, I gig, I create content, I do like seminars, like I don't have like all the time in the world. So like I very much go at my own pace when it comes to like my classical work. I I you know, I study at my own pace, I have lessons and it's not like a become a fluent improviser in like a month type thing. I'm I, I'm in I'm in this for the long haul. I think teachers can be okay with that too. It's that it's not gonna happen overnight. But like for me, as I teach, you know, more kind of classical work with my students, I do so as my comfort level increases. And I think with improv, it's the same thing. You know, we don't have to go into the deep end first. We can go into the shallow end first and start doing maybe some black key uh, accompaniment stuff. And just start on the black keys for a while. You know what I mean? So you don't have to go head first. You can just kind of go a little bit at a time. Yeah, and you don't have to be that far ahead because you still have the musical training. It's not like you don't have that. Yeah, and very good in musical training. I know. I work with a lot of teachers who have serious classical backgrounds, and they have some they have some pretty heavy hitting skills. It's just that improv is a new skill for them, and it just takes time. Yeah, they just haven't applied it in that context. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about the blues next because when people think of improv, a lot of them are going to think of the blues, um, and it is a great twelve bar blues is a great place to start students off exploring this kind of stuff um, for certain students. But I watched a video with you a little while back that, I mean, it could have been months ago, that uh, you did. It was a live video on Facebook, and you were talking about the mistake that teachers make when they teach the blues. I don't know if you remember this, but I so, I so agreed with you because you were talking about which key to start in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So where should we start? Is it C? Right. Okay. So... Um... Pretty much across the board, I start with blues off in E flat. Always, like always. Um, let's talk about different blues places to start. If I have a five year old, they can, like I just showed with the one finger stuff, they can just do black key balancing on one finger and you can do the blues accompaniment in left hand. scale 
add the note A. So black keys with the note A is a blues scale, and that's how simple it is. So. Now, with my intermediate plus kids, we also start in the key of B flat, but they start getting into two hand soloing. And we do like melodies like C jam blues transposed to E flat. I like starting E flat even for more advanced students is because when they're soloing, it still gives, like for, like for the beginner, the black key with note A construct. And we practice singing. Very good for ear training for putting them within a, a box for a second and then we take them out of that box and then transpose it to keys like C and F. But for a while, yes, I start in the key of E flat because it's the most easy key technically and for. Uh, technique reasons and for also theory reasons. Yeah, for navigating. It's just yeah. the C the C blues scale is so hard. Like to find your yeah. way around. C blues is a really hard key, I don't know why people said that. It's just because C major, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just start with it by default. I just want to clarify something at the start there you were talking about having the student do that your right hand and you do the left hand. Is that right? Yes. Yeah yeah yeah. So for a beginner they're just balancing on one thing on the right hand, and I'm doing this part. The blues ostinato is what it's called. That's what I do in my left hand. Nice. And then later on, you'll be introducing them to using, doing that part. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's like, I mean, that's way, if we're talking about a six-year-old, that's way, way down the line. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, depending yeah. on the age as well and the hand span yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Laura says, can you recap the steps? So recap the steps in terms of teaching the blues. So we've got the, maybe de demonstrate them quickly again there, Joey. We've got the student doing one hand. So um, um, for, let's talk about a six-year-old. Let's just stay within the six-year-old because I kind of cover like a mo multiple things. So for a six-year-old, I'm going to have them just stay on the black keys, balancing on one finger. Then I'm going to add the note A. And then most of the work, honestly, with this, for me, is, like, technique stuff. Like, I want them to, like, have good forearm motion. I want them to be relaxed. Like, you know, like, I don't... My goal with a six-year-old doing the blues is not for them to be like, the next, like, Ray Charles in the next, like, two years. Like, my goal is for them, like, if you look at my hand, is for them to just... But we can sing ideas back, back and forth, and it's just about sitting in that E-flat construct. For more advanced players, now we're not talking about six-year-olds anymore, we're talking about, like, 10 to 12-year-olds. I'm going to be doing, like, melodies like C-Jam Blues transposed to E-flat. soloing within the black key construct. And that's a whole world in and of itself, but we probably don't have time for it today, how to teach blues to the intermediate player. But for a beginner, at least, 
it's really mostly just balancing on black keys with one finger and working on proper technique. And uh, if you want to look more into this on like technique with black key stuff, I think Piano Safari has some really good materials on this. I think like if you look at like for example like the forward on the Little Gems book has some really good material that talks about this. I think a little bit. I think there's a lot of material about on one finger technique out there uh, on why I, why I do this. But that's kind of the focus on why I start with one finger blues. Yeah, we're not going to get too much into the one finger versus five finger positions, all that stuff yeah. today. Um, but yes, check out Piano Safari if you want to read about because they're fantastic essays on your website with why, yes. why they take that approach. And I have two exercises in Piano Safari, uh, both in the Older Beginner book and also in the Repertoire 1 book. I have the Old McDonald one, and then I have Tall Giraffe of Friends. Uh, Tall Giraffe of Friends is about fingers two, three, four, uh, but uh, the Old McDonald, and also I think it's also uh, two, 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 three, four. But there's a bunch of one finger stuff in, in, in that book too, which is really great. Yeah, Lion Falling, King of the African Drum, and all that. Yeah, all that stuff. Super. I want to switch gears a little bit because I know you for improv a lot of the time, but I also know you for the comments you leave around Facebook in various groups and in various places. And often they're actually on the topic of the way we communicate with students. Um, this, I mean, in various different aspects of it, but they're on that loose topic. So I want to dive into that a little bit with you because I think you have an interesting perspective on the way we communicate and the way we give students ownership of their work and all that stuff. So um, you wrote this article on Medium um, about a, mo a shift that you made that changed your life as a teacher. So can you talk about what that was and why it changed everything for you? Um, so um, this, this whole process for me um, took around three years. Okay? See, I like to sometimes say that I'm a slow learner, and this is a pretty good example, okay? So uh, so the, this, this process started for me three years ago, and I'll say where I was three years ago, and I'll see say where I am now, okay? So three years ago, um, I was correcting a lot of mistakes. Now, let's just talk about mistakes for a second, because as a piano teacher, it may seem pretty logical to correct mistakes, and it did for me at, at, at the time, too, because, like, a student makes a mistake, well, it's our job to, like, help them, like, correct a mistake. Uh, and I, that was the case for around three years until a shift happened for me when my approach changed from correcting the mistakes to instead helping a student be aware of their own making of the mistake and being able to correct the mistake themselves. And what that shift did for me, and I wrote about this in my Medium blog, I think it's called Changing the Approach is the name of the blog. But um, what this changed for me is it changed my role into one of lecturing, into guiding and helping students find their path rather than simply almost like walking for them. Right? So um, basically, I'll give you and I'll give you a really good uh, example. Um, today, uh, with a with a student, with the same student who did the entertainer thing, um, I wanted him to figure out all the diatonic chords in C, and then I wanted him to transpose it to G. He, he suddenly hit a wall, 
And I realized the reason he hit a wall is because he wasn't really that familiar with the G major scale. So instead of just saying, no, this is what the G major scale is, I said, I basically took the guide role and said, let's just dive head first into this and see how this process works. So I said, okay, what are we trying to do right now? And I guided them through first what the C major scale is. We went through the whole steps, half steps thing. We, we labeled all the chords on a sheet of paper. Then we figured out the whole steps, half steps in the key of G. He, he did this all with, with me. And he made some mistakes in this process, but the, but, but the difference is it was him being empowered to make those mistakes and learn from those mistakes rather than me simply correcting all the mistakes for him. And when all my lessons shifted to kids really having a big ownership role, and I wrote another blog about this called Ownership and Why Kids and How Kids Can Love to Practice. When, when kids started to take more ownership of their relationship with me and lessons, suddenly kids started to make a lot of progress. Kids started to practice a lot more. Kids started to uh, really uh, be more independent. I think that when I started to allow kids to become more independent young musicians, even as young as like four or five, is when my relationship with my students really started to change. And that's even such, I mean, such a loaded word, the word mistakes. Tell me, do you ever actually use it anymore? Um, I use it only to help students process how we process them. <laughs> so, like, so, like, today with that student, I said, um, I literally, I said, maybe yesterday, I said it was a student, I said, hey, so I see you made a mistake. And I said, do you know why mistakes aren't important? And then, and then he said, no, he's like 10. And, and I said, the reason mistakes are important is so that we can learn from our own process making the mistakes and learn how to correct our own mistakes ourselves. Right? So I, I, I said that to him. And I didn't even correct the mistake. He must have been like so baffled because he's coming to me from a, another teacher who is like grading him at every single lesson and giving him like gold stars and stuff like that. And then he transfers to me and I'm like, hey, you made a mistake, but it, it's okay. Let's just let's just like explore it together. I see that you you played uh, the G mixed lady instead of G major scale. What does that even mean? Let's talk about it. You know, suddenly, suddenly it, I just blew this kid's mind that like mistakes are like this like fun thing to do. So basically, I do use mis- the word mistakes, but I use it only in order to reframe what mistakes mean for students. Right. You're never saying you made a mistake. You're just yeah talking about mistakes as a concept. Well, because it, it doesn't achieve anything. You made a mistake. <laughs> Doesn't really do anything, so that's why I don't do that. Yeah, and neither does saying no. That's an E. Like that, they don't learn anything from. Yeah, from I, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I often think of your comments. So they often show this this way of working with students, and they also often speak to the fact that maybe you're cultivating a growth mindset. Um, for those people who maybe don't aren't familiar with this term, it comes from Carol Dweck. It's a very popular TED Talk, so you may have seen it. Um, and it's about how students believe they can get better and improve or they believe that they are fixed in their skills. And it's one of the reasons I kind of hate, uh, not kind of, I really hate the word talent because I think it tends to mean that to a lot of people. To some it doesn't, to some it means something else. But for a lot of people it means an innate ability that is fixed. Um, So do you think about this growth mindset thing and how does it play into your teaching and, and the way you communicate? 
Um, I'm kind of, uh, when it comes to growth mindset, sort of an extreme person. And that um, when I was talking about like my classical playing before, like that's part of my growth mindset. So basically, um, not only do I kind of like to have a growth mindset, but I also like to have a little bit of a beginner mindset. And so what I mean by that is that I basically am constantly challenging my own truth and my own process. Right. So I I know some sort of amount of things, but I'm not really satisfied with what I know. I'm trying to know more than I know now. And what I do know, I'm con- I'm, I'm not doubting myself, but I'm being uh, helped in a, in a healthy way, critical of what I know now. So I'll sort of give uh, an example. Um, working with young five and six-year-olds, I was starting them out with one finger, and then uh, I was talking to a specialist for young kids, and she actually gave me some feedback, which was really helpful for me, which is that if they are not ready for one finger, you can actually start them off with a fist, right? And that was very helpful for me. And that was a growth moment for me. I was like, oh, well, this is awesome. But then I started to do some, like, knocking kind of motions on, on the piano with this four-and-a-half five-year-old, and I didn't just jump into one finger. So I, I, I think that for me with growth mindset, I'm constantly getting feedback. I'm constantly working on myself. I'm constantly getting feedback on my students. You know, I'm friends with a lot of teachers who've been teaching for even longer than I've been alive, and it's very humbling for me. Um, and I'm constantly just trying to challenge my own process and my own truth. And for me, that's what growth mindset, growth mindset and almost a beginner mindset actually means. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic way to be, and I think it's what a lot of us strive for is, as teachers is to maintain that throughout our careers. Um, we talked a little bit about mistakes, but I want to talk about the other thing, because with this growth mindset and trying to cultivate that in students, we have to be very careful, I think, of the way that we praise them. Do you ever think about the way that you actually compliment students or, or praise them on what they've done? Um, like what they're doing well. Uh, okay, so let's talk about validation. That's, that's what you're really asking me, okay? Um, I'm going to answer this and kind of hit on another topic at, at the same time. I, I, I do not use stickers, grades, um, candy, none of the above. I don't use any of those things in my studio. I don't condone it. I don't believe in it. I don't think it's a good thing to do. The only thing that I use in my studio is my biggest tool and my tool belt is validation. Okay? So um, validation for me is very Im- important because when I validate a student and whether that's a compliment or you know giving them feedback, validation for me is on a broad scope helping a student feel a sense of forward motion in their process with me. What this can look like is, for example, hey, you just improvise and transpose it to the blues to C from E flat. You couldn't do that that last week, could you? How does that feel, right? So giving a student a sense of progress and forward motion. Students love that sense of progress and forward motion. And that validation is very important. I want a student to feel successful, to feel like they've made progress, to feel empowered. So that's what I use compliments and validation for, to help students have a sense of forward motion in their process with me, with themselves, with their parents, who are very much part of the process, and that's how I like to use validation. Yeah, that's fantastic. Anything to point out or have them point out to themselves almost 
where they are and where they've come from. Well, that that that, that, that that's a good point. So when I use validation, I use the same mindset as I do with mistakes. I like students to be able to validate themselves. So I'll say something like like this: What did you just do? Can 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 you tell me? What did you just do different from, from, from last week? Or what did you just do different from five minutes ago? What, what change did you just make, right? So, and then, of course, you know, I'm always fair with the student's intellectual awareness and cognitive ability for, like, cortex development. I'm, I'm never unfair with my questions. But I always like to have, I never like to disempower a student to be able to realize something on their own, right? To me, disempowering a student to realize something on their own is almost the same thing as correcting a mistake, right? That's basically what correcting a mistake is. So for me, I like to have a student be very involved in the validation process, help them be aware of their own process, help them be aware of their own progress, and have it be sort of a team mindset approach. Fantastic. Um, so... Before I let you go, thank you so much for your time today. Is there any last tips you want to give to teachers about anything we've discussed today about improv or about communication? Or do you feel we've covered it all? I think that actually there's an overarching theme with all this stuff, with improv and communication. And um, I actually see it a lot with uh, teachers and uh, with players. And I think the big word that we're talking about here is fear. Okay, so uh, fear is the really big, uh, big word. I actually work with a lot of teachers, and they're all phenomenal. They're really talented. Okay, and I think that the biggest thing that holds people back from acquiring a certain set of knowledge, or like improvisation, or from kind of dipping their toe in a certain water, is fear. And I think that. A big process for me, for example, when I like started studying classical more, is being okay with entering that beginner mindset and that growth mindset and saying that I'm going to just embark on this and be okay with being, uh, being in more of a student kind of role, being part of a student mindset. And that's how I operate. And I think that with improvisation or creation, it's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to not be able to play like, you know, Brad Meldow, like, you know, for, like, within, you know when, when, you, when you first start. I think that as long as we, my biggest goal as a teacher, as a player, as a educator, is to be a better musician, person, et cetera, than I was yesterday or even five minutes ago. And to me, that is good progress. And to me, that's the most important thing. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those words of wisdom. I hope it inspires people to give these things a go. Um, tell me, Joey, is there a good place for people to find you, to connect with you more? Yes, so www.joeyleber.com, www.joeyleber.com. If you have any questions about like uh, having a session with me or any questions about improv, you can reach me there. Or if you just search me on Facebook, uh, Joey Lieber, you can find me there. Fantastic. Thank you all so much for watching and thank you to Joey for being with us today and sharing so many fantastic nuggets with us. If you have any questions, follow-up questions, please leave them in the comments below and we'll make sure to get back to you and uh, I'll tag Joey in if, if it needs his attention. So thanks so much again, Joey, and um, bye for now, everyone. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to this interview today. If you want to jump in with your comments, your thoughts about what came up during the interview, please head on over to the Facebook group that's called Vibrant Music Studio Teachers. We'd be happy to have you there as a member if you're not already. And also that means you can catch the next one of these when they go live on Facebook. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.